Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Singsbury Institutes for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Center for Japanese Studies and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Lola Martinez, Research Affiliate at the University of Oxford's Anthropology Department, to discuss the cinematic works of legendary director Akira Kurosawa and his complicated relationship with Western cinema. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Lola. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you very much, Oliver, for having me. Uh, first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Uh, can you tell us about your field and how your interests brought you there? Um, well, I'm an anthropologist of Japan um, with a great interest in mass media and in particular film. Although my initial research, because people thought you couldn't work on mass media and be an anthropologist in the 1980s when I was a postgraduate at Oxford, was on religion and tourism in a Japanese diving village. So it took me quite some time to get back to film, which, um, which I'd always loved. And um, Japanese film, I won't say in particular, but perhaps I'll say Kurosawa in particular. As an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, I was part of a film group that showed films basically seven days a week during term time and several days a week, even in the summer um, back. And I was in charge of the European, quote unquote, European um, film um, section, or I came to be in charge, I shouldn't say, I started that way, I was a projectionist, and I, I got to project um, all sorts of films, uh, including big mainstream films on weekends, which is how we made money. And, um, but, but I, I grew, I came back to Kurosawa films, which I knew from US television in the 60s, abridged versions of some of the big Kurosawa films were on television. And so along with everything else, other European films that I, that I showed, we, um, we showed Kurosawa and uh, eventually we held a big um, film festival in which we invited Donald Ritchie and Audie Bach to come and talk about Kurosawa. We showed all of his films up to that point, 1981, um, including films that had not been shown before. We had this big film festival. I met Donald Ritchie at that point. We showed Men Who Step on a, a Tiger's Tail and The Most Beautiful, which had, I don't think had been shown in the U.S. Um, for a long time, if ever. And, um, and that kind of cemented my love of, of Kurosawa film, although I remained interested in you know film in general. Um, um, while I was teaching at SOAS, where I taught for um, almost quarter of a century, we set up an anthropology of media master's degree, and I was asked to offer an option. So the first option I offered, which I taught for seven years, was on Kurosawa and Hollywood remakes of his film. I was interested at, in, as an anthropologist in how you might keep the same storyline but change elements of it depending on time and, and culture, as it were. And um, after that, I taught a course on science fiction, which is not what we're going to talk about today. But anyway, so I taught the Kurosawa course for about seven years, and then I wrote the book, Remaking Kurosawa. 
Before that, I had published on Japanese mass media. In,、um, I published The Worlds of Japanese Popular Culture, which is the only book of mine that remains not only in print, but that brings me in some money every year. So that, that's done very well, thanks to all the, the people who contributed to that edited collection. So that's pretty much where I am now, still looking at Japanese film and film in general. Um, and doing bits of teaching.、Um, this time I'm doing some teaching for Oxford on their visual media course. Can I ask when you were showing Kurosawa films in the 80s, what would the turnout for that be?、Um, well, we're talking about the University of Chicago, so it was very good. <laughs> But also, many people knew Kurosawa films, as I said, I don't know why. Uh, American public television, the equivalent of the BBC, but more underfunded than the BBC, used to show mostly the samurai films, the Kurosawa samurai films. And so even people who weren't kind of、um, academically inclined knew him for, you know, and knew Mifune. From other Japanese films as well, other samurai films. So you had that kind of audience, but you also had the people who were interested in Japan. So, yes, we had very good audiences for that. Could you give us a brief introduction to Akira Kurosawa? Who was he? What were his most famous films? And what recurring themes do we see in his cinematography? <laughs> that, that, we could be here for hours.、Um, he, he, he was born in 1910 in Tokyo. His, his father was a samurai, and his mother was a merchant's daughter from Osaka. And that's kind of important because his parents were culturally two very different people. Osaka、um, people tend to be you know, more open, more expressive, more emotional, funnier. Best comedians come from Osaka. And his father came from not, you know, not a, a great samurai family, but had a tradition that was much more stoic and quiet. His father actually was a PE teacher, I think. But he,、um, and he was the, the youngest in a family that had a, a sister old enough that she was married and had given birth to a baby the same year he was born.、Oh, wow. um, so he grew up in, in a very interesting time for Japan because it was modernizing. It was a time when people in Japan did not say, or at least educated people in Japan did not say English, French, German is impossible to learn. They were learning foreign languages. They were reading、um, great foreign literature. They were watching foreign films as well as making their own films. They had begun making films almost as soon as a camera had arrived in Japan, you know, Lumiere film showing and, and, and the modern movie camera had arrived. And so he grew up very much at a time when it was exciting to be in Tokyo because there was so much going on culturally. And he wanted to be a painter,、uh, which tells you something about his eye and his aesthetics, a Western style painter rather than a traditional Japanese painter. But he left art school、uh, without finishing and kind of went to live with his brother, his older brother, who was a Benshi. That is a narrator for silent films in Japanese cinemas. And his brother lived sort of in a rougher side of town, of Tokyo, than his parents did. And he got to know what it was like to live、um, in poverty, to see the other side of Japan. He also became very involved with left wing、uh, movements. His brother was very big in, in that world, particularly in, in studio unions. 
and this is important to know about him because he's often talked about as a humanistic filmmaker, but actually, although he never was a, a full-blown member of the party, you might say, he really was a, a leftist. His, a lot of what his themes are about are about the injustices of society. Um, some, even in the um, historical films, he's thinking about the, the way in which men and women are caught up in, in structures of social injustice. I remember seeing an interview with Honda, the film director who grew famous on the back of, of Godzilla, who had known Kurosawa most of his life. And someone asked him, is it true? This was a Japanese documentary. Is it true that Kurosawa was a communist when he was younger? And Honda laughed and he said, we were all communists when we were young. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of left wing leaning theme is very important. He made some very famous films, uh, of course, The Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, Rashomon, The Hidden Fortress are the ones perhaps Westerners know best. Um, Ikeru may be another one. But he, he had a, once his brother died and he drifted into the filmmaking side of things, he, he got an apprenticeship, as it were, the studio and began working with another director to learn the ropes, as it were. He always was interested in, as I said, these themes, these sort of left-wing themes. But because he had trained as an artist, he was also one of these uh, directors who did everything. So he storyboarded all his films when he came to make his films. He wrote the scripts with other um, script writers, but he wrote the scripts. You usually don't see an editor credited on, on his films because he did the editing. He also was very interested in music, so he was very, once he was in charge of directing all his um, films, you know, he was no longer an apprentice, he often worked with the same composer over a period of time, and he would commission very specific sorts of music. He knew exactly what he wanted the music to sound like. So he had this painterly vision, but he also had what... Um, the, the French would call an auteur's um, approach to filmmaking. That is, it was his piece of work and he did a lot of the work. He wasn't just the person behind the camera saying, you know, cut, roll it. Um, he was very much involved with all aspects of the films he made, which I think is what makes him such a, a, a great filmmaker and why people still refer to his work now visually and in other ways. Was this uh, overarching style of directing unusual in Japan at this time? I think to some extent it was unusual. I, I'm not saying that, you know, especially some of the younger directors coming up behind Kurosawa were also, especially, especially when they first made those, those um, late 50s, early 60s films that were very much about the state of Japanese society. I think those younger film directors were also um, like Kurosawa. But, for example, Ozu who is a brilliant filmmaker, I don't think he was nearly as involved. He had his vision. He knew how he wanted the camera placed. He knew who he could rely on to do that. But I think um, Kurosawa was known as the little emperor because he was just so in it and expected so much of people, worked with the same people often for years and years. And he was considered to be a little bit tyrannical <laughs> in trying to get his vision across. So he was known as the emperor. I would like to um, 
discuss two iconic characters of Japanese and Western cinema, the uh, the samurai and mm-hmm. the cowboy. Both are heavily romanticized figures of the nostalgic man's man, and these mm-hmm. two figures were at their zenith at roughly the same time period with many of Kurosawa's samurai epics and spaghetti westerns, such as The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, coming out in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Did uh, Kurosawa's samurai and the cowboy at all influence each other at this time? Well, I mean, there are kind of two answers to that question. One is um, Kurosawa was influenced by John Ford's Westerns. He was influenced by the way in which Ford set up the camera and used the landscape. And I think that's very important. But in, in a way, just as we might say Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns were anti-heroic films, if you see. The the protagonist is not necessarily always a good guy. Mm-hmm. This is a theme that wasn't just Italian. It He drew it from Kurosawa's take on these kind of heroic tales. So although, for example, in The Seven Samurai, they're very heroic samurai, the samurai uh, are also the source of the bandits who are terrorizing the peasants. So there's a kind of dynamic in which um, being a man of war can allow you to be heroic, but it also can allow you to be callous, uncaring. And if you're left without a master to becoming a bandit and preying on ordinary people. So for Kurosawa, the, the cowboy was not the iconic good guy or the samurai was not the iconic good guy either. And I think this translated well into a more kind of cynical 60s where the Westerns changed very much in what they were. And it was through Kurosawa's series of films, um, Yojimbo and Sanjuro, which were inspiration, although he tried to deny it for Leone, that we begin to see a change in the way the cowboy is um, shown in American films. An important thing to remember at this point, and it's a, it comes out of a conversation I had with a Japanese television producer when we were on a panel for television many years ago now, and I'd just come back from Japan, and I said to him, you know, I've been counting how many samurai drama are shown on Japanese television throughout the day and week, and it's, it's a tremendous number, you know, what, what is this about samurai dramas? And he said, well, you know, it's like the Americans we don't have a shared history in Japan. Caste groups before the Meiji Restoration lived very separate, different lives. People in different parts of Japan spoke dialects that were widely different. We don't have a, you know, a shared history, really. So we make one up, just as the cowboy makes up a shared history for Americans. And, and the samurai dramas are about that. They're about a, a Japanese nation that really didn't exist before 1868. And I, I thought that was, you know, an interesting comment because I think what Kurosawa was doing was he was criticizing that kind of move to say, see, this is our wonderful shared history. And he was saying, well, it was a cruel and violent history and it wasn't that wonderful and we should keep that in mind. That's very interesting points. With the Cowboys, everyone knows watching a Cowboy film how unrealistic it is. You have these white hat guys coming in and saving the day and getting the girl. It's all very clearly a fantasy, but I suppose for a Westerner watching Kurosawa Samurai films, they might not know that this is such a, a fabrication, perhaps, or it might be quite difficult to work out what the line is between reality and the director's imaginings. Would you say 
Kurosawa's portrayal of, of the samurai were ahistorical? Well, there is a bit of a history in that he was thinking about the post-war situation, but he was very, very careful in terms of historical details. He was also very careful to do things like film outdoors instead of in the studio. So that was another way in which he was the emperor and used to getting his own way. For Rashomon, for example, they cut down trees in Nara forest and he got the crew and some of the actors to help him chop down the trees and that's a sacred forest and the abbot at the monastery said well he seemed to want it so much so we just let him you know he needed to get the light in to do his filming Yojimbo for example was filmed outdoors his battle scenes were all filmed outdoors so he he wanted people to realize how Dirty. I mean, you look at those battle scenes and there's mud and there's blood and the horses are screaming and dying. He wanted people to realize, to get a sense of the reality of violence and, and war. And one of his most shocking moments comes in Sanjuro, which is the film that follows up Yojimbo. And in that, Sanjuro is trying very hard not to use violence. He's been told off for being too violent and really he should learn to handle things in different ways. And at the very end of the film, another samurai goads him into acting and he basically hits his juggler and the blood comes spraying out. I mean, no one had shown blood spraying out from a sword cut in Japanese film before, just as no one had shown blood um, spraying out when they were shot with bullets in a, a cowboy film before. He used chocolate sauce and a pump to get the effect. But supposedly Peckinpah was so taken by this, this, this visual display of how awful violence could be that he kept watching this over and over again while he was filming The Wild Bunch. And that's the, the kind of refinement of how squibs work as a special effect. In, in cinema in the 1960s comes from Peck and Paul insisting that they be able to get something as dramatic as, as Kurosawa's Spurt of Blood in Sanjuro. Stephen Prince has written about this and the obsessive watching. Peck and Paul kept watching and watching and watching this. So Kurosawa didn't think films should show violence for violence's sake, but to make a point about what a terrible, terrible thing it was. So we can see a really strong exchange of ideas here between Western and uh, cinema and, and uh, Kurosawa's works. It's, uh, it's fascinating. I'd like to look more at uh, Kurosawa's first collaboration with uh, Hollywood, his uh, ah. first and most infamous dealing with the, the only. ambitious project. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, the ambitious project Tora Tora Tora, which came out in 1968. The first attempt to bring the events of Pearl Harbor to the big screen, the production highlighted the gulf between the styles of Japanese and Western cinema. In yeah. fact, uh, Kurosawa's own sanity was called into question by his Hollywood collaborators, and upon completion, it was believed he might never make another film again. Uh, can you explain what the divisions there were and the challenges this production reveals in Japanese Hollywood cinematic collaboration at this time? I can't find it at the moment, but there is a book in Japanese which may have been translated into English called Kurosawa versus Hollywood, um, which kind of outlines everything that happened. Um, and, and you need a bit of background before we get to the disaster of Tora Tora Tora. 
which is that Kurosawa was not immune, even though he'd made the studios a lot of money, had set up his own production company. Um, he was not immune from the fact that television was eating into the film studio system in Japan, the way it was in, in, in the U.S., And so many film directors of his generation were just kind of retired, forgotten. Um, Honda, his friend, was unusual because he made Godzilla and then he got a second life. But Kurosawa was finding it more difficult to get studio backing for the sorts of films he wanted to make. He made expensive films. He used real horses, real people. Um, you know, uh, Pump may have been his one special effect, but all those battle scenes that were choreographed were, you know, were real. He worked with three cameras instead of one. He liked to work outdoors. He was not a cheap filmmaker. So he, he was finding it more and more difficult to, to get backing for the films he wanted to make. His film Dodeska Den hadn't done that well at the box office in Japan. And, but he had this foreign reputation as, as a, a, a brilliant filmmaker. He wasn't just well-known in Japan. Um, and so you have to factor that in. It was, it was the studio system um, becoming much smaller and, and you know, less willing to throw money at directors. It wasn't just as some people have argued that they thought he wasn't Japanese enough anymore. Um, it was more a case of, well, if you want to get backing for these expensive films, you know, you've got an international reputation, get money from the West then, <laughs> which he did. He went on to do that in the 80s. But in the 70s, he was, you know, at, at, at the end of the 60s, he was a, at a low ebb because of this. And he wasn't the only Japanese filmmaker in this situation, but he had a, a, a larger reputation outside of Japan. And so he gets invited to make Toda, 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 or make a section of Toda, Toda, Toda. And basically, he had a breakdown. And there are all sorts of reasons for it, but the easiest one to pinpoint is he was used to working on his own terms. He was used to filming for as long as he wanted to film in a day without the union telling him they had to stop, although he did have a union rep for the most beautiful, nagging him about all, how hard he worked everyone. He had actually married that union rep. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, but he'd got to such a point in Japan that he worked with the same crew, the same cinematographer, you know, the same sound person. He was in charge, as I said, of the music and the actors would do take after take for him if he wanted. And he was working in Hollywood with much stricter rules where they weren't going to let him choose the music, where they, you know, he, he was, it was like putting him in, an, in a little box. And, and that, I think, along with the fact that he was hiding, finding it hard to make films at home and with the kind of um, long standing echo of his brother's suicide in the 20s, 1920s, which I don't think he ever properly dealt with, he, he just he just broke down, you know, he was being told off every, every day, I think by the studio for running over or the actors weren't happy or um, he had to work with a translator. His English wasn't good enough. It just was not the best situation for him to be making a, a film in Hollywood. It just wasn't. So this is more of an issue of challenges between Kurosawa and Hollywood than a Japanese approach mm. of directing to Hollywood's directing. Well, I mean, I think Hollywood, for example, allowed Hitchcock 
to do, you know, Hitchcock basically edited with his wife, quite often helped edit his films, but he was in charge. Hitchcock also storyboarded his films. Um, you know, Hitchcock also had a lot to say about music and things, but Hitchcock, you know, would fall asleep in the director's chair once everything got set up and went off. So he wasn't, he wasn't, he was a control freak, but also he liked to go home at the end of the day and have a nice meal, whereas Kurosawa would happily work, you know, into late at night if he needed to. So it was kind of levels of control freakness, if you see what I mean. His were much higher than someone like Alfred Hitchcock's. <laughs> um, and, and it just didn't work for Hollywood. It just, you know, and he was, it, and it meant for expensive filmmaking as well. Um, and we're talking about, in, you know, in, at, at the beginning, at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, Hollywood was not interested in going over budget. I mean, we, we see that happen, you know, later on. But it was just television was eating away at their profits as well. It had lost money with some big blockbusters. You know, different studios had lost money with different attempts to make huge films like Cleopatra early in the 60s. So everything was tightening up and they couldn't have someone who was costing them money every day. And, and he was unhappy. He was terribly unhappy in that situation. Following the um, disaster that was... Tora, tora, tora. Kurosawa got a second chance with Western cinema through George Lucas in particular, yeah. um, director of Star Wars, that needs to be mentioned, who drew much influence from Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress and personally saw his return to Hollywood in 1978 to direct Kakemusha. Mm. Um, Star Wars itself drew much of its aesthetics from samurai culture with uh, lightsaber swordsmanship inspired by Kendall, uh, kimono-styled Jedi robes and Darth Vader's distinct samurai style helmet mm -hmm. and armor. Um, was this the first example of Kurosawa indirectly influencing a major Hollywood production or is it simply the most famous example of that? I think it's the most famous example. Don't forget we have all the spaghetti westerns which were kind of channeling Kurosawa anyway, which then influence the revival of the western with the cowboy not no longer being so squeaky clean. Um, the Seven Samurai is also an influence on Star Wars. If, if you dig into the sorts of things George Lucas has said o over the years, he really studied the Seven Samurai um, in some detail. But yes, the Hidden Fortress is very much there. One of the things you have to remember, though, about Star Wars, and you're too young to know this, but I, w I was there when Star Wars came out. It was a low-budget summer film. And it wasn't expected to be a big hit or to make lots of money. And in fact, Amer Lucas only got to make it because American Graffiti had made so much money that the, the studio said to him, okay, you want to make this, you know, this space thing, this science fiction thing, go ahead. You know, you've, you've done well with American Graffiti. You can use the money, the profit from that. <laughs> so um, it, it, it was a kind of, accident but not um and you know in terms of its success and it certainly led to lucas and uh, francis ford coppola uh, who admired kurosawa as well to uh, help him find 
some of the funding for Kagemusha. And Kagemusha wasn't done in Hollywood, it was done in Japan. And, and if you look at the list of producers, Japanese money went into it as well as, as Hollywood money. So what um, that rediscovery of Kurosawa via um, Star Wars did was allow for him to continue to work at home where he was happiest, but with more global funding than he had been able to get in, in the past. So we see that series of, of final films coming out of that. And his influence has been tremendous. I was just looking at some of the, um, the battle scenes in Game of Thrones and the director of the Battle of the Bastards said, basically, it's Kagemusha. I wanted to direct um, a, a, you know, a battle scene that picked up on Kagemusha. You can't watch a film of the Second World War without some film critics saying, yeah, it was a great battle scene, good special effects, but it still wasn't as good as a, a Kurosawa battle scene. The Chinese certainly were able to run with it because they're able to get lots of people on horses to do their battle scenes and their historical films. And they probably would never admit it given the relationship between China and Japan, but that's, that's Kurosawa, that's Kurosawa. So his influence has been tremendous in all sorts of ways. You know, the Indian filmmaker Sajirat Ray said, you know, Kurosawa, I, I, I look at his films, I, I learn from his filmmaking. The French admired him greatly. So, I mean, his influence really has been global. And, for example, Rashomon has been remade, I don't know how many times, but there's a Thai version, there's an, a Nigerian version of Rashomon, there's, of course, a Hollywood version Rashomon has become a sociological term, the Rashomon effect, about people telling their story from different points of view. CSI had a Rashomama um, episode referring to Rashomon. The Simpsons have referred to Rashomon. I mean, he basically, that film before Seven Samurai, which won the prize at Venice, has had a huge influence, probably beyond that of his samurai films. One story which caught my attention, though, was uh, how in the production of Ran, his reinterpretation of Shakespeare's King Lear, that enormous production effort failed to win uh, any Oscar nominations except for the costume designer, I believe, because yeah. uh, the Academy couldn't decide whether it was a French film or a Japanese film because of the complications with funding. So yeah. was, was this a real barrier in getting international awards? Yeah, I think other directors have found this. For example, there's a, a German filmmaker who makes films in France who can't get an Oscar because of, you know, the, you know he can't submit it as a German film, he can't submit it as a, as a French film. So I think it's not just Kurosawa's problem. Other people have had that problem. I'm not sure... I mean, I think he appreciated awards, and, and this is just me speculating. He liked being, you know, winning awards, yes, but I think making films was more important for him than, than winning an award, but that's, that's speculation. He liked being in control of the money. He had his own production company, and he, he kept tight control over the rights. So, you know, he was very careful about who got to make his films. And, and, and so he did pay attention to what was going on globally. But I think what mattered to him was that he'd be able to keep making films. It just seems bizarre to me that 
a film about warring samurai with epic battle scenes directed by Kurosawa could be possibly not Japanese, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the thing about about Ron, of course, is he was halfway through writing him before someone said, this sounds a lot like Lear. And he said, but no, it actually happened. You know, this daimyo in the whatever 15th century did this. So it was, you know, he claims the Lear connection came in partway through the process because oh. he was basing it on a historical event. Thank you for yeah. all your lovely in-depth answers. Last question I'd like to ask is, uh, where can we see Kurosawa's legacy in modern Japanese or indeed uh, Western cinema? Ooh, modern Japanese. Well, Kitano. Um, Takeshi Kitano certainly is quite interesting because when I was teaching my film course, at SOAS, I had a student whose Japanese was so good that she was um, the interpreter for Kitano when he came to the BFI Film Festival, the London Film Festival. And I had said that I could see Kurosawa's influence on, on Kitano. And so she said to him, my teacher says, <laughs> and my sensei says, and he said, oh, no, 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 if anything, I'm more influenced by Clint Eastwood. And I thought, well, that's interesting because, you know, Clint Eastwood learned his filmmaking from Leone, who was influenced by Kurosawa. <laughs> anyway, so he denied the connection until he made Zatoichi, where he, Kurosawa's daughter was his costume designer. And he said to her, you know, doesn't this remind you of your father? And she said, well, you know, he never did violence for violence sake. His violence always had a message. Mm. And when he won the prize um, at, at Venice, he thanked Kurosawa as his teacher. So I think he was always aware that, you know, Kurosawa was an influence on him, but he, he didn't really want to admit it in, unless he absolutely had to. So you, you see, I think you see that he changed the realism in um, samurai films. Um, if you watch a, a television samurai drama up through the end of the 20th century, he didn't have a great deal of influence there. They, they all look pretty hokey in some way or another. But certainly in the more realistic depiction of violence in, in films, he had an influence there. And I think for a director, a Japanese director, Kurosawa is part of their history, but it depends on what sort of films they're making. So I think if you were to um, talk to Koereda, he might talk a bit more about Ozu because of the kind of nature of filming more indoors, more domestic scenes. Um, than, whereas someone like Takeshi comes out and says, yes, Kurosawa in the end. So I, I think it depends on which filmmaker you're talking to. But what is true is that Japanese audiences don't know who he is in the way that Western audiences who have some knowledge of film history know who Kurosawa is. I gave a talk a few years ago to a Japanese audience and the person who introduced me said, well, who's heard of Kurosawa? And it was, a, you know, people in their 20s and 30s. Three people raised their hand. Really? Yeah. Whereas people in their 60s to whom I was speaking always had a favorite Kurosawa film, Ikeru, <laughs> usually. Ikeru and Seven Samurai usually being the two they mentioned. So for, you know, young directors, um, you know their film history, he matters. But for general Japanese public, no, nah, they don't really know who he is. That's amazing. I, I had no idea about that. Mm. Uh, can you hypothesize why that might be? 
Well, because a lot of filmmakers from that generation tend to be forgotten, but that whole thing about whether he was a Japanese filmmaker or not, even though it wasn't exactly the reason why he began to lose funding, the fact is that story remains. Um, Donald Ritchie told it endlessly. I remember when I interviewed him about Kurosawa back in the 90s, he said to me yet again, because I'd met him in the 80s. Well, you know, people say he's not really Japanese enough anymore. So although that's not really the reason behind he found it difficult to get his films funded, it became the story about him. He's too international. My Japanese student said to me, in Japan, there's a line between being just international enough and being too international. So there's that. He just is not known. His films don't get shown a lot. Some of that has to do with the production company and the rights thing that his son now runs. But some of it has to do with the fact that until recently in Japan, you didn't have a national theater, you know, like BFI, that kept films and stored them and restored them and ran lectures and talks. That's been going on for about 20 years now, but it's been going on much longer in other countries. You know, they have done a Kurosawa retrospective, but there are other directors vying for place. There are many, many film directors in Japan. You know, just because foreigners know who Kurosawa is doesn't mean all the Japanese (laughs) need to know, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a a mixture of of factors, but uh, they did remake The Hidden Fortress, well, about a decade ago now, to celebrate its 50th anniversary. And they really tried to hype it up as an important, you know, Kurosawa moment. And audiences really didn't care. It didn't do well at the box office, despite having, you know, um, Hiroshi Abe in it, who, you know, could draw an audience anywhere. (laughs) David Desser just went, oh, I would see it just for Hiroshi Abe when I told him about um, the remake. (laughs) Um, And and he's not even a Japanese young woman. Uh, But, (laughs) you know, it, it... he, it, it's just not part of their history. Film history is a kind of new academic study in Japan. You're just getting people who go to film school instead of learning as apprentice, you know, as apprenticeship in the studio. The big apprenticeship until recently was in softcore porn, you know, pinku um, films, because that was the only industry making money. And if you wanted to make a young man wanting or woman wanting to make money, that's where you learn to make films. Now you can go to film school. Mm-hmm. But all those horror films of the 1990s were made by people who would earn, you know, learn their craft making softcore porn. Yeah, I can see the connection between horror and biography yep. in some ways. Yeah. 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 That's, that's very interesting given how many government initiatives there are to really nationalize so many aspects of japanese culture and history to think mm. that the film would be neglected it has been so long neglected yeah i, I, just, I was totally unaware of that it's oh. less neglected now people would would say oh lola you're out of date saying all that we've changed this this is and then they have they have but i think kudasawa suffered from that kind of lack of earlier interest mm. in the film industry yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for all your insightful answers. It's been a really illuminating episode. Thank you very much, Lola. Okay, thank you, Oliver. <laughs> Take care. You can find Lola's research profile in the description below. You can find out more about her research in our 2018 recording of her seminar, Mad, Bad and Dangerous, 
revisiting Kurosawa's woman. Join us next week when we will be in discussion with Dr. Michael Tsang of Newcastle University on Haruki Murakami and the Hong Kong protests. Thank you for listening.